So yeah, before I even get today's show fully rolling, I kind of want to hit play right away on this great guitar solo from Alan Hines. It's one of those long kind of one chord jams, deceptively simple. A lot of people think, oh man, one chord? I could play all night on one chord. It's funny though, if you ever find yourself in that situation where someone's expecting a 10 minute solo from you, you'll find out real fast how many ideas you have. Minute two comes around, minute three, minute four. Wow, but Alan just takes it to the moon and back on this stuff. This song is called Just Get In. It's the title track from the album of the same name by Wonderland Park. Wonderland Park is kind of a project built around Alan's amazing improvisational abilities. Alan, of course, can play the heck out of some changes. as you would expect from a guy who's played with really deep band leaders such as Roberta Flack and Bobby Caldwell, Gino Vanelli, Randy Crawford, the Crusaders. Plays a ton of slide too. He's got other tricks up his sleeve as you're gonna hear. But whatever he does, it's always soulful and lyrical and aggressive and powerful. I always love it. I think uh, Alan is deserving of the very best adjective, pretty much, that you can give a guitar player. Tasty. Man, he's right up there at the top of the list, in my book at least, with, you know, those super tasty players, such as Robin Ford and Larry Carlton. Alan's got it, man. He's got the touch. My name is Jude Gold. Thanks for listening to No Guitar Is Safe, the guitar show in which I plug in and have a guitar hang with a guitar hero. That's right. We jam, we talk tone, we talk gear, we trade licks, but most of all, we figure out how a great player such as Alan Hines went from one day thinking, man, I want to pick up a guitar for the first time to building an incredible career and, and developing an amazing style. Alan Hines is also a prolific solo artist, and um, his latest solo album just came out. It's called Fly South. It's a very uh, emotionally charged album. Because, you know, halfway through the making of Fly South, Alan got the worst news anyone could ever get. He lost a child, or I should say, a grown-up child, his daughter. She was... 34, Katie, 
toughest thing anyone could ever go through. Alan seems to be doing well, considering. You know, he's healing, he's processing, and he's making tons of music. Deep, meaningful record for Alan. Fly South. He was also on an airplane once with Lee Rittenauer, and Lee said, man, you do all this stuff. You should get an album with just one drummer throughout and one band. And that's what he did with this album, man. He's got an incredible drummer on it. Vinny Caliuta, who you know from Jeff Beck and Sting and other great artists. And he's got A-list bass players trading off. Abe Laboreal and Jimmy Johnson. Wow. I first met Alan at Musicians Institute when I got a job there in 2009, early 2009. And it's just an amazing thing to walk in there and hear a player like Alan, world class, right there teaching students. Plugged into maybe some random practice amp, still sounds amazing. Alan has a lot of fans all over the world. He's uh, just got back from Japan. He was on a solo tour. He should have been really jet-lagged when I interviewed him, and technically I guess he was, but we just got going and the guitar inspiration took over. So let's go up to Laurel Canyon, try to find some way to get that copter in between the trees on those tiny little roads up there. So close to LA, but yet so far, and hang out in this killer guitar shack, Alan's house, in the woods. We open up today's festivities with uh, we're jamming on a Ronnie Laws tune called uh, Friends and Strangers. Alan played with Ronnie Laws, just one of the many, many great artists he's worked with. He's kind of soloing. I think I take it out with the head. All right, let's head up there. And again, special thanks to Guitar Player Magazine and GuitarPlayer.com for supporting my show. Thank you. 
Dude, I love it. Just even when you were just warming up, I love some of the stuff you were doing. Oh, man. Just like trying to remember that first chord. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while. I actually played that with the Ronnie Laws. It's some in, uh, I played with the Ronnie Laws with the Crusaders. I, I played with the Crusaders for a couple of years, years ago, and we did some kind of joint thing at Carter Barron in D.C. at an amphitheater. I just remember being this hotter than hell. Mosquitoes. Have you ever played there before? No. It's a pretty famous amphitheater in, in D.C., Sounds cool. And I remember playing this song because they had a chart for me for that song, but they were doing it in a different key. You know what I mean? It was kind of, it wasn't real organized. So they had a chart for me and little did I know they were starting on the bridge and it was in a different key. So right <laughs> out of the box, I jumped in and like played just a big clam and they all looked at me like, oh, the white boy sucks, you know? <laughs> but later on when they gave me a chance to solo, they all came, they were all really nice to you me. You won them back that. over. I won them back over, yeah, with a couple, you know, old redneck clicks I've been playing for the years and years. <laughs> what were you playing back then? What, guitar? Yeah, and rig. Uh, that was my, probably my Telecaster. Yeah. You got some sort of telly today. With you, I mean, it looks like a vintage well, Fender, but you just never know. With, with Alan Hines, Hines, I know, because I'm, I'm the, the king of... I like mutts, you know. I like the little strays that come along that are like part this, part that. But this is a 53 Esquire neck, which is my favorite neck. It's just a great shape. And they all seem to be a little bit different, don't they, when they get that old. The body, we're not really sure what that is, but it's probably like, all I know is it's pretty lightweight. I found it in a pawn shop for 50 bucks. And the pickup I know is a 59 pickup, and this is a 68 pickup, and the electronics are all from uh, the early 60s. But I think the main thing I've discovered over the last few years, is I think most of the tone is in the neck, personally. I swapped out the body. Like I've had four different bodies on this, and they all sound great. I think the neck is more tone than I think we give credit for, or I ever did, ever did before. Interesting. Well, you should know. How many guitars do you think you've built? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, over the years, probably 15 or 20 for students, you know. I build them, and yeah. if I like them, I keep them. And if I don't, yeah. I usually sell them to students. Well, but the, including the ones... Even oh, the ones together for myself? Yeah. Yeah, probably lots more than like, that. Yeah, because I just love putting them together. I hope I make it to like I'm 80 years old and retired in a little garage apartment bigger than this place, of course. But, you know, I can just see me sitting there waking up in the morning soldering stuff together. I just love the smell of solder in the morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, I actually love putting guitars That's together. You never quote. know what's going to happen. It might turn out to be like a gem. I put together some guitars that are like some of the best tellies I've ever played, just by luck. You know, you get the right shape neck and... So much of yeah. it is luck. Now, you, you show me some of these. Uh, your pedal board is just beautiful, perfectly wired. Did you wire that? I wired this myself. So, actually, it's not perfect. It looks more perfect because when I was in Japan last week, they cleaned it up really big time because they were taking lots of pictures of it. But, um, well, I kind of I rewired a little bit from when I'm, when I'm doing gigs out, out of Los Angeles. And when I'm in L.A., I have it set up to go through these red plate amps through the effects loop. So I'll go in. Everything starts mono, you know. With this, this is actually a new pedal I'll show you in a minute from Exotic that is just killer called Soul Driven. Uh, but it's a great pedal. It's like similar to the AC comp that they made for years or the AC yeah. boost. Similar to that, but it's a little bit beefier. Um, but everything's kind of mono. Then I go into a little boost pedal, EP boost, into the Wawa yeah. pedal. Everything's mono at that point. My Octavia's mono. And then I send to the front of the amp, right? To yeah. Like the input of the amp. And then the amp, um, the side that I use for to generate all the overdriven sound, that goes effects out, effects send, back into the pedal board volume pedal. And at that point, everything goes, in, goes into stereo mode where I go into this uh, old, that sort of old uh, Boss tremolo pan, the pan two or whatever it's Sweet. called. Yeah, that's a great old pedal. So you're going mono into that, and that's coming out going stereo. That, that mono, that comes out stereo into um, 
Well, the Deja Vibe, I have just running on one side of the stereo chain because it's, uh, it's a vibrato. So it gives me a really light chorus. A really light chorus, just, um, you know, because that's the way chorus works. Yeah, one side sound. is modulated a little bit. And so just, um, that's without it. Gives it a real sweet little chord, little movement happening there. Man, yeah. I hope it comes through in the recording because it just makes it sound so three dimensional in this yeah. room here. It gives it a nice thing, nice little sheen to it, without being overly, you know, because here's like what your yeah. average, your normal chorus from the uh, where it's going through all the processing. But just having it just on one side of the stereo, you know, uh, chain at that point is kind of a cool thing. Yeah, well, and, you know, it blew my mind when I found out that you know the famous chorus from the Jazz Chorus 120 Roland. It's just chorus on one speaker, and the other speaker is dry. Oh, see, I didn't even know that. That's the secret. Just like because it doing, sounds great. Yeah, exactly what, what I'm doing right here. That's right. Um, but I discovered this a while back, and it's 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 nice to have the variety because I just sometimes I just leave it on, I forget it's on, and it's just like you don't even notice it. It just makes the sound like you said, kind of three dimensional. Then I go to this new Boss uh, DD500 that I like. Uh, I'm not sure why I like it that much. It just seems really easy to use. Somebody, some tech told me that it's a. It's a better uh, converter than the, some of the other timeline stuff. It's more, it's not as digital. It doesn't process into O's and back to zero, whatever. So Stop I said, what the heck, and I just bought it just because I like to mix things up anyway. And uh, then I go into my little supernova. The new Digitech reverbs, I understand, are actually, they bought the old Lexicon stuff. So it's actually the Lexicon, all the um, all the data, all the stuff, all the chips from like the old Lexicon stuff. Supernatural. So this one's called Supernatural. It's got a lot of kind of, you know, a lot of uh, affected reverbs that I probably will never use, but it had a couple settings that I really liked a whole lot. Is it on um, right now? It's on right now. Oh yeah, there it is. Let me turn off the delay so you can hear. Yeah. So yeah, there's some cool. of that, some of that oh, three-dimensional sh- stuff happening from that too, a little bit, yeah. Not enough to really sound like I'm underwater too much, but... Yeah. And that's pretty much it. And then, but when I'm... Um, oh, yeah, and then I go both uh, out of this back into... They're all kind of set up to... They can run line level or effects level, and then I run back into the, the returns of both amps. Yeah. But when I'm in Japan, I just I just jump between the last uh, mono effect into my volume pedal. You know what I mean? I just put a jumper yeah. there. And then I just use the, the two clean amps when I'm in Japan. I don't use any effects loop stuff. Right. I just go into two and generate all the overdrive from the, um, from the exotic pedal. Can I hear that new exotic, the soul-driven? Yeah. Let me... Um not bad for yeah it sounds sorry, sorry about the buzz but you got it's old guitar I gotta or turn do you, how are you getting your grind today are you using the red plates that's the or? no I wasn't getting grind before this is that's that that's the pedal right. Sounds great. And, and, well, thanks. Yeah, it's um, you know, it's temperamental. You know, getting the balance between the distortion pedals and the the matched volume of the amp, so the impedance is right yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So I haven't really dialed it in yet. Um, I did when I was in Japan. I have it on my rigs yet. My rig that I've been using for the last year distortion is from the red plates itself. <laughs> Let's play, let's play a little something with that, right. that wonderful, wonderful tone. I love your come together. Then I'm falling up. Old album, yeah.
I could keep soloing all day, but I want to talk to you, man. First of all, before we go on, Uh-oh. I just got to ask you about those minor seconds you do. You know, everyone knows a minor second interval. <laughs> and well, and they're yeah. weird. Sometimes they sound weird sometimes out of context, sound weird, huh? but you've turned that into like a signature thing of your style. It's like one string has got one note and half step below on the lower yeah, string. Yeah, you got to... You kind of got to commit to it, don't you? <laughs> well, I do that one thing. I do that one thing where I do like a palm mute thing, where I kind of, um, uh, which is pretty effective. So, especially when I have a wang bar, I'm, uh, when I use a Stratocaster, but when I go, uh, I'm kind of a bit faster. Yeah. But I'm kind of. I did that on Monkeys and Slides on the last record on a, couple, a song called Confianca. Right, yeah, you got to get to the top. Of it, but the cool thing yeah. is when you get to the top, it go, but and then go, but that's right. So you know what? I love your fancy ass rig and your vintage pickups and your vintage necks. Let's hear what these. See, I'm holding this Jeff Beck Fender Strat model with. It's got a warmth neck, but otherwise, this is stock lace sensors. I'd love yeah. to just hear what it sounds like. Yeah, sure, man. I think I might have pulled a couple of the strings out of tune on those oh, bends. Okay. That's why I bought this. Too. Okay, so now I've got your telly. Oh, I love this neck. Isn't it a great neck? Yep. Nothing beats. That's a real special sound to me, that old Telecaster. So how do these work? Is it, is it a well, humbucker? Um... <laughs> Sounds great. These are nines too, aren't they? Yeah, I'm in a wimpy nine phase right now. I know a lot of guys who are actually. You know, I love the tens. Seem to make it work. I love tens, and every time I pick up a Strat off the rack at a music shop, I'm in Sam Ash or something. I'm like, 
Man, these nines bend in a cool way. I know. I know they feel great. Well, I love tuning my guitar down like a whole step, which is basically yeah. putting nines on it when there's just like yeah. rubber bands. I can do like Billy Gibbons. Like, <laughs> <laughs> totally. So, yeah, show me how you do it with the dive at the uh, end of that. Was... That's beautiful. You know, it's kind of cool in a way. Yeah. I haven't really... I gotta be warmed up. I gotta have just the right amount of tequila. Oh, I love it when you do the bar and then move move the second around. I had, a, I had this one um, song that I was gonna write, that I was gonna put on my last CD, which I had that kind of idea. Beautiful. I also thought that was really nice if I could ever. Hard to play. Yeah. Oh man, you know this is gonna make me want to play a guitar with nines on it too. I'm telling you, man. I I, I must have gone well, 20 years on tens, and all of a sudden I'm in this nines phase for like the last eight months. Well, you know they're um, they're making Kurt Mang and this company I endorse is getting ready to make a set of strings for Alan Hines. Alan Hines. Well strings. deserved. Well, I don't know, but uh, but we're trying we're trying to think of some kind of gimmick, you know, to make him different. And all we ended up doing is like we ended up lowering the bottom end of it by just a little bit. So it's going to be like you know like tens. I think it's going to be like ten, thirteen, like sixteen, twenty four. Everything's just a little yeah. bit lighter on the bottom end. That could be cool. It could be cool. I mean, it's just for like bending in legato stuff. It might be kind of cool. Yeah, I still yeah. like the tens on top for because when I play slides, sometimes you kind of yeah. need the girth. I think right. a little bit when I do that. Yeah, I'm not sure this if it's a Holy like Grail guitar, but it, it's a good utility guitar, right? Yeah, of course. And then the neck is nice, and I'm kind of digging flatter radiuses these days. So that's a kind of cool thing. But that, that's got a, a vintage radius, but it's not too vintage yeah. You know, it's like... Man, this is a killer guitar right here. Yeah, it's a nice guitar. Nice so, yeah, nice. No, I like this thing. I can make it work. I can make this work all day long, even with probably this pedal. I'm just slipping all over the frets wrong because it's so light. It's right. too easy to play. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's switch back. I was curious to hear that, and thanks for showing me those uh, those minor second. Yeah, it may, it's, it, the original idea was to have that little dive bomb at the end of it to kind of set those off. You know, so kind of cool. You've done so much, played with so many amazing singers, and you know, Randy Crawford, Roberta Flack, Gino Vanelli. Yeah. Got your own. You just did a solo. Bobby tour. Caldwell. Bobby Caldwell. I just saw him in Japan last week, actually. God, uh, how many millions of people have played his hit song, What You I Won't Do I'd... For Love? And you've Boy. actually played it with the guy. What you won't do, do for love. You've tried everything, but you won't give up. In my world, only you. I used to have his original chart. I had, you know, it's like some, I don't know who wrote it at the time, but it was one of those charts that's so perfectly written. You know what I mean? Like every little yeah. detail's written, but it's, somehow it's like all on the same page, but it's all legible. Probably got to have Andy Weiner. You know, Andy Weiner works with Ricky, uh, Ricky Minor a lot for all the TV shows. I think he's paid like $1,000 for a chart, you know, to do, because they're like so perfect. 
But I had one of those charts, and it was so old, it looked like papyrus paper because it was this old <laughs> yellowed, you know. And I had that, I don't know where that is, it might be in a old box someplace. But I um, went and saw Bobby last week in Japan when I was there. We saw him at the at Billboard Live. And uh, yeah, he sounded good. They're still doing the same songs they were, you know, 30 years ago. Pretty much the same list, same song list. Hey, but it was cool. No, yeah, I played with a lot of good singers, man. I learned a lot from playing with singers, you know. Of course, you have many solo albums, too. You just toured Japan on a solo tour. I'd love to talk about it, some of all the stuff. But first, where did you grow up and, like, what did your parents do? Like, where where'd you come from? Yeah, where did I come from? Where are you coming How'd from? How'd you get out here? Where are you coming from, Heinz? <laughs> well, I'm from, I grew up in the South. You know, I grew up in South Georgia, uh, Born in Minnesota, but I was raised in North Carolina for several years, and then we moved to South Georgia, and then Selma, Alabama, like in 68, 69, and then Auburn, Alabama is where I grew, you know, junior high school and high school. Um, and that's where I started playing guitar, like at 18. I started pretty late, 17 years old, something like that. Actually, I just found a picture of me playing, like 17 years old in that picture, like that picture. Like my, that's great, man. You're playing a little... A little classical guitar yeah. a friend had. But um, yeah, and I played in the jazz band. I mean, I had played French horn, so I knew a little yeah. bit about you know how to read music a little bit, nothing really. And then um, I just had a good ear, and so I started picking up. And I saw I used to sneak into clubs and saw this guy named Billy Earl McClellan, who was a great session player in Nashville for a while. He died a few years ago, but he was uh, playing a Les Paul through a Marshall stack, you know. And that was the first time I heard that. Like we're so we're talking like 1972. And the yeah. Allman Brothers were only 50 miles away from me, so I saw them live. I didn't see him with Dwayne. I saw him right after Dwayne died. But that blew my mind, too, seeing the Les Paul for the first time through a Marshall stack, what it could do. It could, nobody had ever heard that before then, you know. Right. Um, so, and living at this little university town, a lot of acting through. I saw Led Zeppelin on their first tour, Rod Stewart. Uh, little Feet was a big influence on me back then. Even the, And I always thought they were a southern band, but they weren't. They're all from California, you know. But their songwriting and, and Lowell George's slide guitar and Dwayne Allman's slide guitar really affected me deep. So yeah. I've always been attracted. And growing up in the South, I've heard pedal steel my whole life. So I've always been attracted yeah. to that sound of yeah, Telecasters yeah. and slide stuff. So I uh, went to Berkeley in 78 just because I started, you know, at the time, guitar was, everything on the radio was guitar. I mean, whether it was Steely Dan or Doobie Brothers or, you know, Everything had a guitar solo in it. Foreigner, Journey, everything was based around guitar riffs. So that was like the best time to be learning guitar. And I played in top 40 bands, which meant I had to like, you know, the bands that worked the most were the bands that copied the shit the closest to the to the recording. So, you know, we took great pride in learning all the Hendrix stuff exactly like or learning that solo by Neil Sean just perfectly or whatever. So our band worked a lot, cover bands. And I went, you know, then I progressed into fusion just because all my friends were getting into stuff. And I started listening to more Steely Dan. Cause that was, and it wasn't an elitist thing or anything. It was just what every, every guitar player was doing. It was starting to listen to the Crusaders and, and seeing one guy's name all the time, Larry Carlton, on like all the cool shit, you know? Right. So started reading about him and realized that he'd studied with Joe Pass and he had been doing a jazz thing. So that's that's when I got attracted and, started, and, and went to Berkeley, saved up a bunch of money, borrowed money, went to Berkeley in 78 for just one quarter but it was enough to be embarrassed uh, into realizing my first day in harmony class was interesting because I walk in I was all ready for my first day and this teacher walked in Ed Tomasi I think he still teaches there and he looked really looked like a drill sergeant you know and class gets quiet and he goes points at me and he goes give me the notes in C sharp minor 7 flat 5 chord and I just kind of froze and just went oh C sharp and he, this little Japanese girl next to me he goes C sharp EGB you know I realized that everybody knew all their shit better than I did. So isn't that why you went there to learn it, though? Exactly, but I didn't know it was you know that embarrassed me into like learning it before the next week. I mean, I sat there and drilled with my friend Rob Alexander, who's a, I went there a bass player, who great bass player. He played with Eric Johnson on the early stuff, um, but we sat there and just you know grilled each other on every night, every day, just on, on chord structure. So I kind of got that stuff out of the way and made the rest of the leaning, uh, the learning, the leaning, 
<laughs> Sounds like I was reading that and read it wrong. Hey, man, you're jet The rest of the, I am jet like, All the other sight reading, all the other, other uh, learning was just kind of, it made sense after that, you know. And then um, went back to Alabama and uh, played more cover bands. We were starting to do more fusion bands where we were playing like Zappa and Steely Dan and more creative stuff, you know, Queen, whatever. And then um, entered the guitar, the Larry Carlton Scholarship, which guitar player was offering. They had an Eddie Van Halen Scholarship and a B.B. King Scholarship and a Larry Carlton Scholarship. Uh, back in 1983 or something like that. Was this for Musicians for, Institute? Yeah. This was through MI. Yeah, I right. think so, through Guitar Player Magazine. Anyway, I won the Larry Carlton Scholarship. I got a whole year of school, which at the time, I think tuition was like $2,700 for a year of school at MI. <laughs> Things had changed a little bit. Yeah. And uh, so I came out here and uh, you know got free school. My borrowed money, once again, from family members and lived out here for a year. And then I started auditioning when I was still a student. So wait, I'm always fascinated when people come all the way out from, uh, say, the other side of the country or from the south to Hollywood, which was a lot crazier back then. What was it like? What year was that, if I may ask? Yeah, 85. 85 is when I started school. Yeah, I had a friend who was already living here. Another guitar player who moved out here was living with his girlfriend. They had an extra room to rent me. So I had rent for $300 for a little room, like on the corner of Western and like Santa Monica. It was a terrible area. Back in there someplace, you know. And I had a little Fiat, you know, I drove out here in my Fiat with my Marshall amp, my boogie amp, my all my record collection and my Strat had one guitar. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and so, but school was really exciting then. I mean, I remember walking down the hallways at MI and or then it was called GIT. And literally, I mean, it's like Joe Pass, Joe DiOio, Robin Ford, Scott Henderson, Frank Gambale, Jennifer Batten, Jeff Berlin. I mean, it was, that was like every day. Damn. Walking down the hallway at, 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 at uh, GIT then. And Robin, I skipped all my classes. Robin was there like one week out of every month the whole year I was there, Robin Ford. was. So he and I kind of got a little bond. We're still kind of friends. He's hopefully going to help me out with some of my new stuff. That's, I'm hoping he, could, he might be able to you know, steer me in the right direction. But it was a special place then. You know, it was cool. And everybody knew each other. It was a small class. All the guitar, we all knew each other. And to this day, I mean, I stay in touch with a lot of guys still all over the world. Then I started auditioning with bands. You know, I was still a student, and I auditioned actually with some of the teachers there, and uh, they were a little resentful because I got it and they didn't. They were a little bit... uh, We didn't really talk too much for several years after that, but now we're all friends. (laughs) Well, like what audition? Uh, The first audition I did was at the school for Richard Elliott. And Richard Elliott at the time was... uh, He'd been a sex player with Tower of Power, and he'd had some fusion albums that Carl Verheyen had played on. But he um, was doing his own thing, and it was, that was before smooth jazz. It was kind of it, it was to turn yeah. into smooth jazz a few years later. But at the yeah. time, it was still just instrumental jazz. And he had actual tours with like you know, week in Florida, week in Colorado, week in Oklahoma, week in New York. And we used to play uh, once a month, or was it every weekend? We used to play at my place, this club in Santa Monica, on the weekends. From that, I got the band Hiroshima, which at the time was a really big smooth jazz group in 89. I got sure. that band, got that tour. That was also an audition thing. And they were at the peak of their smooth jazz success. We had a big couple of big tour buses and played Carnegie Hall, played all over the place um, with them. In between those gigs, I did some uh, tours with Roberta Flagg doing like uh, the Colors of Christmas, where they'd have like several artists on one bill. And Patty Austin and Jeffrey Osborne and Peebo Bryson did a lot of tours with all those guys. Um, and then yeah. Bobby Caldwell heard me with Hiroshima. I got Bobby Caldwell. That was even a, kind of a, another step up because Bobby's stuff at the time was really his band was. I mean, that's when they were taking like, you know. 24 space racks to Japan. We'd have like 10 of these racks, you know, and we, I had my Mesa Boogie cabinets too in stereo with a big rack with, you know, all sorts of, you know, VHT power amps and, and it was a big production. Jimmy Haslip was on bass and mm-hmm. Marilyn Scott singing and 
three background singers. Was that all powered by the one big hit, pretty much? Yeah. But he had, he actually had many other hits that you probably don't realize. I mean, yeah. a lot of people don't realize. He had a Heart of Mine. Uh, it was a big hit, but I think... Uh, Oh, heart of mine. Either Chicago or Boz Gags. Yeah. Next time I fall in love was like Amy Grant and Peter Cetera. And uh, All or Nothing at All yeah. was a big Al Jarreau hit. He had some Commodores hits. Bobby's a yeah. lot of publishing out there, you know. Um, yeah, so that was huge you. at the time, you know, because at the time it paid, you know, a lot of money for the, for the day and we got to go to Japan. And that was pretty much where he still to this day is most popular. And then mm-hmm. I got... Um, I went from that to Randy Crawford because she offered me like more steady work over in Europe, and we and so I traveled the world for the next fifteen years. That was kind of my money gig. I could come home and not really have to work if I didn't have to, which I I didn't probably hustle as much as I should have back then. Randy Crawford was, or yeah, because she'd go out. Yeah, like, how long did you play with her? Like fifteen years. Wow, that's amazing. She's an amazing singer. You know, she's I, a great singer. I was once. I mean, there, I always knew the song "Street Life," just mm. such a beautiful, super funky tune. Amazing that that was a hit song on the radio. You that that could be a hit, exactly. Well, as like long that. as it was, and all the chord changes. She had Rio de Janeiro Blues, another hit for her for a while, which was had some commercial success. But it's nothing like over in Europe. She's like Tina Turner. I mean, people oh, lose here, Randy Crawford in Germany and Italy. It's a different Let's thing. Let's play one of her tunes. You know, I remember I was on my first touring band. I was in a Red Lobster in like South Carolina or something. Mm. And Cajun Moon by Cajun Randy Moon. Crawford. It's actually a J.J. Kale song. It's a J.J. Kale later. song. Yeah, she reharmonized it. I actually have a chart for you or someplace. It's so, such a cool like eight bar blues it's just yeah it's really jammy. and she made it really different she made it really really sultry in yeah, her own yeah. way you know you want to play a little bit play yeah what was that what key is that in do you know it in I don't know, c minor c minor cajun moon where does your power line yeah baby the moon across the southern sky and took my baby way too soon what have you done Oh, he's grabbing the slide, folks. Try to play slide on, but anyway. Go ahead, Jim. I want to hear some uh, more, more slide. 
Just um, doing a sunny labyrinth, rolling like that. Yeah, interesting. Um, yeah, in lieu of, I mean, I, this is the wrong guitar. The strings are a little bit too low. But you know, you can just kind of yeah. roll by taking. Um, I guess if you're looking at the guitar, I'm yeah. kind of rolling it to where I'm like fretting on the D, and then I roll it to where I'm fretting on the high E, but kind of letting up yeah. on the D. So you can roll up and you get. A yeah. So you're. You're lifting the slide up off so it's not touching the high string, so you can fret, fret behind it. Yeah. I mean, on the right guitar, it sounds pretty good. I did some of this yeah. on the new CD that came out pretty good. Well, maybe we'll uh, grab a, the right guitar in a little while. Uh -huh. But uh, Well, that's a really cool guitar right there for slide. Oh, look at Even that. You've probably never seen that contraption. That's a palm pedal that they don't make anymore. It's an old Bigsby contraption. It, it, it pulls the note up to a fixed point, so it sounds like a pedal steel if you use it right with a, with a volume right. pedal. It's get, a pretty cool guitar. At the exact bend, it's like having a B bender and a G bender. Yeah, B and G, and you can you can yeah. uh, you can fine tune it. You can adjust it to like a minor third or a half step if you want. That's um, sick. Well, it's a cool. Some guys or some guys play it with like six or the like one. It kind of fans out over over all six strings, which yeah. is a trip. That's a whole. That's like too much thinking for me. Well, hopefully we can break that out in a little while and yeah, sure. Maybe take a little video of it or something. But so you've of got course. a new album, man, and I got two new CDs that I'm really proud of. They're oh. both really different, but um, I'm proud of both of them. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Fly South, and I don't know how okay. it's been so recent. I don't even know how ready you are even to even talk about what has happened in your life. But can you yeah. tell us about the dedication of the title Fly South? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. You know, it's. It, I mean, a lot of people kind of know now my daughter passed away and it's, you know, and the one reason, one way that made it easier for me to even talk about it is that I realized through Facebook of all places, how many other people went through the same thing, have gone wow. through the same thing. And um, I had friends write me saying, hey, you know, Alan, do you remember me from 20 years ago? I said, oh yeah. And he said, you know, I lost both my daughters in a car wreck or something like that. So I go, whoa, you know, I'm not the only one. So that kind of helps a little bit, you know, I guess kind of tempers it or kind of puts mm -hmm. it in perspective to where it makes a little more sense. But yeah, she, my daughter was, was cool. She just never quite found herself or how to really generate her own happiness. So she was always kind of had this addictive personality and just went too far. Oh, and uh, they found her. Um, it was in the process of when I was finishing my CD. So actually, she would, we had talked the day before. And she was in, you know, you never knew. My daughter was, you know, she was 34. But you never really knew what kind of state of mind she'd be in when you talk to her sometimes she'd be pretty lucid sometimes she'd be kind of like whoa she's like you know drinking or doing something was she out in she was in, she was actually moved from alabama she was living in seattle oh, okay so um she had sent me some photographs that i thought were really cool and i said man these are great i said katie i'm gonna use them on my next cd and she goes oh yeah i have some better ones that i'll send you you know in a few days and send you some ones that i tweaked out a little more and then you know, she died the next day. Man, so I, I got, got what she dude, had. I'm so sorry. I mean, I've said it so many times. But it's, no, thanks. I, it's yeah. and I appreciate that. I mean, it's a, you know, you get by with a little help from your friends, for like you know, that kind of things. And you, what can you do? You know, you just kind of like, I, you know, we all went through the stage. Um, 
myself and my ex-wife and everybody who knows, you know, thinking what we could have done different. But, you know, at some point you can't live somebody's life for them and things happen and you just, and you got to keep going on, right? You got to, but that was hard. But that's, that's where the title Fly South kind of has a few connotations for me. I mean, if you heard, you know, me playing guitar, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I, I think I was a little more of a fusion player. I think, you know, maybe I was, mm-hmm. I was going for harmonically more challenging stuff because that was what was more important to me. And as I've gotten older, I've kind of started going back to what got me into guitar to begin with. And that's like just the sound of, you know, guitar going, you know, something like that sounds cool to me because there's no other instrument in the planet that can just sound like... That kind of sound of just... What other sound has that jingle jangle of strings ringing a little bit out of tune like that? There's nothing mm. else like that. You can play it, and that's why they've never been able to sample it, and it's so expressive. And Anyway, so my taste in music have really changed. I, I care less about... I care less and less about the mathematics of guitar and the you know the actual complexity of what somebody can do like a sax player might do on a guitar. That doesn't interest me anymore. It's more of a melody and and vibe driven from from what makes a guitar a guitar, you know. So yeah. that's that's part of the thing. Also I had to fly south for my daughter's services. So when I thought when I, the name kind of came into my head, I said it's got several different meanings that mean a lot. So it um it could you could take me either way. And there's several songs on the CD that are kind of titled after after right. her, her loss too, Heart fell is one of them. And June fifteenth would have been her thirty fifth birthday. And we actually we had sir, and I flew south for her services on the fi- on the on the fifteenth. It was actually them, yeah. Yeah. Heart fell is one of the. I gotta say, I think it's one of the very most beautiful guitar songs I've heard in years. Thanks, man. seriously. That's really um, that means a lot because I know you're you've listened to a lot of stuff and you're a good guitar player yourself. keyboards with like Ebo uh, and slide and volume pedal. That song, yeah, that whole record was kind of me sitting around with my acoustic guitar for the last couple years and I was just kind of playing along. I've always liked those kind of open thing. So yeah. if you listen to the track by itself, which I can actually isolate it for you here, it sounds like Queen because you hear all these, and and then Genevieve Artati, who you know is a great yeah. talent from the band Knower, and who also teaches at MI, she um, sang and layered all the yeah. other stuff over the top of it. That's yeah. beautiful. You have such a nice touch with, the, with those chords. You're playing a 
fixed bridge guitar, Telecaster, no <laughs> vibrato, but you get a lot of nice vibrato with your fretting hand. Yeah, that's, um, you know, it's funny because the guys in Japan point stuff out to me all the time that I don't realize I'm doing. They always, sometimes there are these clinics that will be like four cameras, like, you know, get close up on my picking hand. They're really <laughs> fascinated with the way I, cause I have a strange way of picking. When I do use a pick, it's like I turn it sideways and I kind of stroke it like that, you know, as opposed yeah. to picking like they right. tried to get me to change it quickly. So that, and then the, do like a little shake out there. Well, just like yeah. do a little vibrato on one, on one string, and that's just—I don't know why I do that. This is—I yeah. don't know if it's a nervous tick or something. I just kind of. Anyway, um, but thanks. That song came out really good. I'm really proud. And Jimmy Johnson, you know, his fretless bass is great on that. And the and the layer like pedal steel type sound guitar yes. is that. Is that palm pedal guitar in there, which is pretty nice? Oh yeah, I was wondering that steel guitar really sounds like a sounds like sounds a pedal, like pedal steel. steel, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you just put a little delay on it, and um, in a volume pedal, you can really fool people. Can I you show a, us right now, or is it? Yeah, uh, sure. Too I, play, much of a... I play in a country band um, called well, not really country. There's kind of a singer songwriter, a guy named Jason Mandel, with a band called the Coles, and I play um, this guitar all night long. You would never know I knew how to play over any kind of altered anything if you heard this band. I mean, it's because I just, it's all just country <laughs> stuff. It's all three chord stuff. But he's a great songwriter. It helps to have a little verb, a little delay on this guitar just to make it sound more authentic. And these strings are, well, last time I changed it was over a month ago, so they may be a little rusty. A little, it's better to have fresh strings because when, you, when you're playing all the slide stuff, you can hear all the little imperfections when the strings get old. Is that like an old junior? It's an old Melody Maker. It's like a 59 yeah. Melody Maker. It's got a huge neck on it. The neck you, is a. The headstock is interesting. Yeah, well, that's how the melody makers were. Yeah, not for melody. And um, they had different shape bodies. I like this one a little better because it's not quite as teardroppy. And then this is an old, um, what pickup is this? This is a humbucker. I should know. This is that Tom Holmes, John, not John Holmes, the porn actor, but Tom Holmes, the guy. But So yeah, and if you know enough theory, you know, if you know your fretboard well enough, you you know that if they're playing like a G major seven, you can with the slide, it's amazing because now you're getting bent notes with the slide on, which is yeah <laughs> hard to do otherwise. So let's hear what each of those levers does. Yeah, so one's, and I guess at one time they made them the way it looks like it's constructed, like you could actually have a lever on each string or each one, but I think the standard way they sold them back then was one on the B, which um, I have it set to a whole step. You know, it goes, so it goes to a fixed pitch. And you just press it down. Yeah, all the way. And then the, I think I have the G going up a whole step. Great. Yeah, those are, and so you can you can keep it in standard tuning and still get those kind of minor third interval. 
But you can't. The secret is to kind of you got to have a roller bridge for it, so it kind of you know the strings yeah. move uh, smoothly. Which I just hacked up and put on here because the guitar wasn't worth that much. But you have to kind of position. It has to. The guitar has to have a flat top. You can't flat have top. a carved like a Les Paul top or anything. And um, and also you just got to angle it where it's comfortable for you because you can set the, the 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 levers to where the the pitch is a little closer to the body. And um, I just really am comfortable with this guitar. I play it all all the time whenever I get a chance to. It's just, um, yeah. it's got a vibe. And I use it, you'll hear it through my whole CD in the background doing, you know, just kind of layered. And putting like two of these on one track sounds really, you can fool the listener to think it's real pedal steel. Yeah, you get the triple so, attack there. The palm pedal bridge and you get the yeah. slide and you get the volume pedal between those three things. Yeah, and a little delay, you get the, you get a nice ambient. That's great. And also I pick a lot with my fingers when I'm doing this too, and that gets a nice little like, that helps the, the tone. You don't use much comp- that was cool man <laughs> it's fun yeah, you don't it's, use much compression on this kind of stuff when you're clean or no i think if the amp is good and the amp is i mean if the if the, if the you know if the, here here's the secret i found as far as getting a good clean sound and i could before i used the before i started using the distortion from the red plate i would always just try to seek out really good like 40 to 50 watt 6l6 amps whether it was an old you know uh like a, a twin reverb, like from the 65, or whether it was just all these other boutique amps, but I had um, Dr. Z's, whatever. But I'd make sure it was in that range because if it was any less, when you play clean through the front of it, it'd crack up, it'd mush out. And if it was too high, like a twin reverb, like 100 watts or something like that, then it's too strong. You don't get the compression, that natural compression of the tubes. So this right. is like right in the middle, so there's some place where it's not, I mean, it's plenty loud enough for any club, uh, and it has plenty of it sounds like there's a compressor on but it's really just the, the I think it's just the right level of the, I don't know if it's the impedance or just the, the tubes working just hard enough to where you get the natural compression without it distorting, distorting too much interesting that's a good point mm. and you know especially with two of them you can certainly be loud yeah I had a, a bad cat make some great stuff too I used to like their stuff a whole lot and I just got to deal with um, the guys in Red Plate called me one day and said we had this amp show that goes on we want you we have this one amp we think would be perfect for you they kind of knew my style so they i went down there and they had these amps and they just blew me away i thought they think they sound great i was actually there with buzzy feeton and he we both wanted one I think he i think he got one too that's great now did you yeah. want to show some of the layers on heartfell or something or? oh yeah sure i can give me a second i'll pull it up here i have it on on my um because we're sitting in my studio for you guys we play i'll play the ebo for you by itself uh, which is kind of cool i think Sounds like cool, huh? three ebos together. Yeah, there's three ebos. Yeah, and they're all kind of recorded stereo. And then it, that that on top of my acoustic guitar. Cause I put the acoustic guitar first, of course, and then I just 
I kind of find notes at work and then I slide them around interval wise. I don't really know what I'm not thinking chords. I just my ear is good enough just to go, uh, you know, like, a, like you would sing something, you know. So with the acoustic guitar. That's nice. Um, and then I had I had this idea because one of my favorite bands is the band Nowhere. Um, yes. I'm just, With Genevieve. I have a huge crush on Genevieve. I think she's just one of the most talented and nicest girls. She's smart. She can play anything jazz. But she also appreciates the beauty of simplicity. You know, she can... She, and she can sing the easiest, simplest stuff or she can go all jazz on you and sightseeing, <laughs> you know, and sing the melody to, you know, uh, to Charles Mingo songs or whatever if you ask her to. So I knew she'd be right for this so I sent files to her and got this this is the same intro but this is just her vocals Yeah, it's beautiful, huh? Yeah, she, I she, love her stuff, like with uh, Nowhere and uh, me too. Lewis. did a tour you're doing solo shows in japan what was that like well i've uh, had a relationship with a company called exotic for years and they um we kind of just reconnected because i like their new products better than ever before the new guitars which i have here you can check out oh, oh i, I saw that i think it's they're great i mean the next of these things are just awesome beautiful guitar and they make these new pedals uh, they're making one for me finally that's kind of based on my kind of mid-rangey legato style sound um but I have a lot. Of, I have a. I've had a following over there since I used to tour over there with uh, Bobby Caldwell. You know, so it goes back to like the '90s. My CDs sell pretty well over there. Probably more there than uh, than anywhere. And the fans are totally loyal. So they booked a two-week tour where I was like in Tokyo for like three or four nights doing shows every night, um, to maybe like the size of baked potato. Not yeah. not the blue notes yet. You know, that's my next. Uh, that's my goal is to go over there and play Billboard or Cotton Club, the kind sure. of the next level up. But these gigs are still great, and you know it's full of guitar players. And um, uh, I signed, I sold a ton of CDs, and I played like first three nights were in Tokyo, I think. Then we took the bullet train to Osaka, Nagoya, and Kobe, yeah. and played a couple nights here or there, and then back to Tokyo for some more shows. So I did shows almost every night. I was booked a lot, and then in the afternoons I did a lot of clinics. So I'm usually so jet lagged, and I've already seen Tokyo so many times. I don't need to sightsee. So if I'm wide awake in my hotel room, I might as well be doing something you know constructive and making some money. So, so they booked a lot of so it was a combination of clinics, but there are more gigs this time than there were clinics. That's great, man! Mm. Congratulations on all that. Now, what would somebody ex- you know find surprising about playing Japan versus some other places we're more familiar with? I yeah. love Japan, by the way. Yeah, I do too. I, the way they respond, for one thing, you know, I used to think they were kind of it's deceiving because I thought it was almost they were almost rude when they would like you get through the song and they go ah, and then it's over, and you're thinking, oh my god, they don't. They're so quiet, and it's, it's really because they're just—they want to hear. They want to hear everything you're going to say and everything you're going to do, and they're totally into it. Oh, it's respectful. But, it's, but for a, for a you know yeah. 
most American, usually in American clubs, you can hear a blender going, people talking, or you can they the, they last the longer. People shout stuff out, but there the thing most first thing I, that shocked me is that they get so quiet. There's you can hear a pin drop in the club when, in between songs. Um, that's right. How the attention they pay to detail as far as setting up your gear and the sound is like second to none. They have the best gear and they know how to use it. And they just you know I get up on stage my my. Everything is tuned perfectly. All my dials and my amps and everything are set exactly the way I had it the day before. I take pictures of it. So my stuff's yeah. set up like perfectly. So I just kind of walk up and play. You said they cleaned up your pedal board or something? <laughs> yeah, they did. Well, it was covered with cat hair because you know, I've had it in here for so long. I took it there. And they were, the first day, they saw I get down with a little squeegee, you know, sitting there and you know, <laughs> clean all the cat hair off my, my pedals. But no, they're great. They, you know, everything is small over there. You know, the bathrooms are small, the clubs are small, the cars are small. Um, I love it. I was uh, I passing by a construction site in Tokyo, and all the bulldozers and backhoes were all like you like know three quarter size, size. size. from so, Disneyland. Yeah, it's cool. exactly. They'd be caterpillar, but they're like junior size. I love it. Yeah, it's so many charms about hanging out in Tokyo. The bidets, you know, the bathrooms, are, you know, the, the toilets are just great. They walk in and the toilet seat comes up like it salutes you, like No Time for Sergeants, the old Andy Griffith movie. You ever see that? <laughs> but the toilet seat kind of comes up and you sit down and you can hear birds chirping and you know it's just. So many little things like that, and um, you know they're great people. I mean, in general, I mean they're just they're they're just they've been really great. They've saved. They've been my whole career for the most part. They've just they've kept me afloat. You know, I go over there once or twice a year and do tours, and it's great. Now I just find that kind of enthusiasm in other parts of the world. I mean, I have my fan base everywhere, but I'm trying yeah. to figure out. You know, you've listened to my stuff. You used to tell me one time my stuff kind of sound like smooth jazz, but with teeth. Which is, you know, and I, and, but because of those teeth, I can't really get any smooth jazz airplay because there's enough harmony and there's enough distorted guitar going on that's never going to get um, smooth jazz, which I, which is fine with me. And then I don't really fit into any kind of prog rock or any kind of fusion thing. And it's not quite Derek Trucks. It's not quite, you know, bluesy like Robin Ford or anything. It's kind of a mishmash of everything. So I'm, I'm trying to find the right vehicle now or the right management. I guess you'd whatever somebody who can help me get down the road a little further. Well, man, I sure wish you all the best success. You certainly deserve it. World-class player. Well, thanks. Thanks. And how do you like living up here in Laurel Canyon? Like, this is such a historical place of Joni Mitchell's, David Crosby's, the Frank Zappas. Yeah. And here you are in 2016. What's and, you it know, like actually, to... right next door, this, you can see through that window, there's a house next door through the woods because uh, you can't see the roof of it. But that was George Harrison's manager. And some people think that he was actually there when he passed away. But yeah, Laurel Canyon is full of that. You know, there's a song on my new CD. It's called Joni, which is mm-hmm. my favorite song on the, rec- on the record, I think, just because the, the way they layered, I layered a lot of guitars. And I stole the tuning from an old Joni Mitchell, uh, I read in Guitar Player magazine or one of the magazines about how she tuned her guitars. What was uh, the like tuning? A, it's like a C-sharp minor nine chord. I can't remember exactly what the okay. intervals were, but it's a really, you put on acoustic guitar, so it's like one chord, it sounds like, oh, that's Joni Mitchell. It sounds like so many tunes she used on uh, Wild Things Run Fast or a lot of her songs through the years. So I had that, and I just kind of wrote this song around it, and um, it always kind of had a Joni vibe to it. So um, I figured since I wrote it up here and I was living up in the hills, like, you know, literally, on the, when you go back to Hollywood from my house, you pass by where she lived with Graham Nash. There's a house right before you get to Lookout Mountain. 
Um, and one of the morning, it was, uh, I was finishing the tracks on that uh, the week that my daughter died, actually. And I was up here. I just kind of, you know, I quit. I didn't go to MI for a couple of weeks there. And I just took, and I finished my CD up here with all the windows open. It was really cool and overcast. And the birds were just going crazy in the morning, one morning. And I just put a microphone outside. So the birds you hear in the beginning of that song are from up here in Laurel Canyon. And the tuning was Joni thing. And it all sounded like a Joni. So I just kind of dedicated it to, um, to Joni Mitchell. Because I know she's sick right now. I, I assume she's still kind of uh, in a bad way because nobody's kind of heard from her in the last year. I just love Joni Mitchell's songs forever. She always had the best musicians with her, whether it was Jaco Pastorius or Pat Metheny or Larry Carlton or um, Robin Ford. Probably the crowning, um, the, the sweetest thing about this record is having Vinnie Caliuta come in at the end and do all the drums. Uh, and it's, you know, kind of backwards the way most people would record their records. I had Vinnie kind of come in and do everything at the end because I... I have I was I have I'm really good at doing mock-up drums. Where my drums actually sounded really good. I mean, there people thought it was a real drummer. The stuff I had programmed. So I had it kind of done. Then I sent that to Jimmy Johnson, and he likes to work at home. And so he like lines everything up perfectly. And he comes back the next day. If he doesn't have a good day, and he makes sure that everything is perfect. So I had the perfect all my guitar. Pretty much, you know, eighty percent of the guitar parts and and Jimmy Johnson and a good drum track. Had some good charts printed up, and then I just brought in Vinny, and he did everything in one afternoon. He brought I, in his drum set, and you mic'd it all up. Yeah, I'd worked with him, you know, through the years, so he kind of knew who I was. And um, yeah, I'd left a message with him. He called me back the next day. He said, "Let's do it." He said, "I got a break. I got a window before I go on the road with Sting." So I found this one studio he felt comfortable in, and I happened to work just coincidentally had worked there and done a, some TV show music for a Japanese guy the year uh, about six months before. So I called Mark Green up at Mark Green Studios. He says, "Oh man, Vinny loves it over here." He says, "This, you know, he loves it. and it does. It sounds great. The drum tracks are unbelievable. I should take them out and use them on my other songs because they're all." <laughs> Anyway, but I had these really good charts, and my charts were marked, you know, A, B, and C, but there's no notation as far as, like, you know, breakdown or go to a ride symbol or go to side stick or fill, nothing, that kind of stuff. And Vinny, in his genius way, he just he just sat there in the studio and listened to a song one time, maybe made a couple notes, you know, and then, he, then he, we just turned the machine on. And it was literally one pass-through for each song. And if you listen to the CD again, wow. I mean, every time I listen to the CD, I hear something that I didn't hear before. It's just spectacular. He did, and people told me that it was going to be that way, and I, I kind of said, "Yeah, right," you know. But we never punched in once. I think the only time we punched in was when the chart was wrong. There was something. One of the charts had like a second inning, or it was, it was like you know, first inning was like forty measures long, the second inning was down at the bottom of the page, or something really wasn't him. But besides that, he just like went. Amazing. Song's done, and then we went out and smoked a couple cigarettes, and then we did it again for the next song. Is there a favorite, um, like, a, or a one highlight moment of his playing on one of these records that we could play right here? For yeah, I want to play this one section of this one song that I think is this some of the funkiest shit I've ever heard. Yeah, he's truly as good as they say. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason you can just say the word Vinny and they know who the hell it is. Yeah. But yeah, and Vinny's the nicest guy in the world. I mean, he's like totally. Um, we actually had a great, we did a great little take. Jeff Richmond, who was a friend of ours, sure. wanted to come over and, and check out the uh, the way the session was going. And I so before he got there, I said, Vinny, I said, let's, let's play a trick on, on Jeff. I said, when, um, when he walks in, you know, I'm going to stop you. I'm going to say you're rushing. And I want to, <laughs> let's get into a fight here and just see what Jeff, watch Jeff's face, you know. So, sure enough, unfortunately, we didn't stop because he, Vinny did everything in one pass, right? So we get through, he comes in the studio, and Vinny comes in with a chart, and I go, I don't know, Vinny, that one, we're listening to it back, and I go, that one little section, I think it's, 
I think you're kind of rushing right there. I think I mentioned, he goes, what do you mean? I said, well, let's listen to it. And we isolate, bring it back again. Yeah, it's like something's, somewhere there just doesn't feel right. And so he starts going, no, man, it's right. I said, I said, Jenny, I wrote the song, man. I know what it's supposed to sound like. <laughs> so he starts getting mad and I get mad. And Jeff Richmond's sitting there going, <laughs> like, what are you doing, Alan? Don't piss him off. And we both started laughing. It was pretty funny. Oh, my gosh. What? <laughs> I feel sorry for Jeff on that one. Yeah. Now this song is called Yonder Hills and there's one section in it. I find the section because there's a really funky section where I just, it's my favorite part of the song. So many, through the record, there's so many little magical places like that where he just starts grooving and goes into this thing that you, I, there's no way I could have written that out for him. Can you solo the drums there? Or? Yeah. You know, he's just... Um, <laughs> what a machine. It's just really good. Yeah, there's some other songs where there's more fusion where he's playing some more stuff I can play for you, maybe. Um, one song, the 6-8 song. You know, drummers love 6-8. And there's one song I wrote... Why do they love 6-8? I think because there's so many fun ways to subdivide 6. And, put, and on my song, I started off with this... I was trying my own hand at this, trying to be clever, and I started off the song um, like a 4-4 four, four pattern, but over 6. Like, um you know they got a four yeah. four section in the beginning of it um which he just picked up on immediately i mean Just a one-man drum symphony. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you and I, just, you know, because I had to, you know, we sat here and mixed this. My, uh, Ernesto Homeyer and myself sat here and uh, Ernst. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he's a great, you know. He's got the patience. He's got that German work ethic, you know. And he's got patience, and he's also got better ears. My ears are kind of shot. Um, there's a lot of frequencies I can't. Actually, one of my ears, I, I, where I live, there's like tons of crickets here at night. And if I'm lying like this, I can hear them. If I turn over they go away it's like somebody just turned off the crickets because my high end is just gone completely from my right end I remember it's some one particular gig years ago where I was next to a drummer's ride cymbal and it's just like this, this is not there plus I'm older and there's certain frequencies you lose when you get old I'll be 60 in a month so Ernesto sat here and there's a lot of times like in my haste to put a guitar track down I'd layer something and it'd be a bad edit where there's like a pop a digital pop in there someplace and Ernesto can hear those still and I can't so he sat here through all my tracks and so I've heard my stuff you know so many times now I can't, it's hard to even listen to I've heard them but we sat here for like two weeks and just listened to the songs and made edits and fixed stuff and did crossfades um, and every time I hear something else Vinny did that's just amazing yeah, yeah what a treat really, to have him on your album man congratulations and I mean you always have incredible players yeah I'm lucky I, got, I have a lot of good friends and they all helped out tell me about the inspiration behind Wonderland Park well the this, Wonderland Park album is my friend Peter Hastings who's 
we went to school. He went to Berkeley. We went to MI together, and we were we've always been good friends. But he started working at the improv group called the Groundlings shortly after after we got out of MI, and he realized he could make a lot more money doing that. And he started writing for television. He eventually got to where he he produced all these television shows, Animaniacs, Tiny Toons. Uh, then he won like seven Emmys for uh, Pinky and the Brain. So he's a really creative guy, and he's always loved playing music. We have a couple of different bands we play in around town, and we always had this idea about. Well, his concept, which is a little flattering, is that he always said, what I do best is solo, and I've never really stretched out solo stuff enough on my records. I always have like 8-bar solo, that's nice, and 16-bar solo, that's nice. But, but he always wanted to uh, document, I guess, the way he put it, uh, you know, me kind of experimenting, you know, even if it's over like a D7 chord. So that's what Wonderland Park is. It's like real simple melodies. He and I wrote all the stuff together. Just, you know, we'd sit around the afternoon with a shot of scotch and at night we come up with these ideas and record them and we finally got it together after a couple of years of just kind of clowning around you know we'd have months in between where he was working a lot or i was working a lot finally got it together with this drummer named chris wabich and um i think the song we did these songs in japan they went over great because they're real simple and it's it can be fun for my students because they're like easy enough that most students can play the melodies on them and the solos are just kind of open jams you know what are one of the ones you show a lot or teach students a lot and what's one of your go-to ones um, oh, the title cut off the record is Just Get In. And it's got, I went, now that's probably the only song on the record that I went back and layered some of the guitars and there's a lot of slide stuff. And it's this song. I wrote this song in the morning of the session just sitting around my acoustic guitar said, this would be kind of a cool vibe. Yeah, we don't have anything like this. But what I really like is all the layers that are coming up right here in the little bridge sections that, that make the song kind of special to me. You know, the song's got a cool vibe to it. And that's really, we, that song killed in Japan. Dude, I was playing your exotic. First of all, I love the finish on their new guitar. It's all completely relics, metallic blue, all thrash looking. They nailed it. Love to hear that guitar. Yeah, actually, about uh, ten years ago when I first got out with the exotic, I was. I told him, I said, you know, you should change the logo because the logo, the logo they used to have on it looked like hieroglyphics, and it was like one of those kind of cheap Chinese guitars you see at the Nam Show, the booth that people always walk by and don't never stop at. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it looked like, and I told him that. And the, but the guy was the guy who was working there was really a proud. He had designed that, and that was like his baby, so it was not going to change. And actually, with um, with the time, they actually changed it to what kind of what I had drawn on a napkin for them, like a kind of like a Fender ish logo. Um, but they did a lot of things. Like it's really thick right here by the nut, which is a lot, which is kind of like some of the old Fenders were, which I think adds to something maybe like I said all these little things add up right it's this uh, roasted maple neck which they which is, I guess that sucks all the moisture out of it so it kind of makes the guitar harder it doesn't move as much if you travel around there's not a you know I, I remember the first yeah. guitars when I went to Canada with Gino Vanelli we played over there and the guitar dried out in about a month 
and all of a sudden the frets were hanging off the edge you know the wood actually shrank but the frets didn't so it was like it felt like barbed wire you know <laughs> and this one uh, won't do that because it's all and the body's a perfect weight and it's um, it's alder um, and they wrap their own pickups now so Kiyoshi the guy who works for Exotic you know used to work at used to be at um, Mike Fuller at Full Tone he designed all the OCD pedals and all that stuff so now he's doing all this yeah. stuff at uh, Exotic to me, there it's like the best new company that's making, you know, stuff besides Fender and Gibson. You know, that I think are right. really high quality. And they're still in that sweet spot of being a small company. Yeah, yeah. Before and they blow up too. Nitrocellulose. Yeah, everything's kind of hand done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's take it out on something. What do you What are you feeling today on this uh, Friday afternoon? enjoyed that hang with alan hines deep cat deep gear guy deep tone guy deep player wow this tune you're hearing now is called falling up 
It's a song that Alan Hines has as the uh, title track of the album of the same name that came out a couple of years ago. Alan says that a lot of students have used this as kind of an entrance piece when applying to music college, which is pretty cool. He says some people have even posted versions of themselves playing it online. I think it's because it's like in that sweet spot. It's a uh, really cool, kick-ass, exciting sounding, but it's not too brutally difficult. Guitar just should never be brutally difficult. And it's interesting, like just as, as you heard from Billy Idol's right-hand man, the multi-platinum guitar hero Steve Stevens, on the last episode of this podcast, that would have been episode 30, the more he plays, the older he gets, the more gigs he's done, the more achievements he has, the more he's shredded <laughs> and all that stuff, the more instrumentals he's recorded, the more he's just trying to get more out of each note. In other words, he's playing less notes and going for deeper, bigger notes. And I think that's where we all end up, you know? It all kind of comes back to that thing, you could call it the blues or whatever, but where you just, just, you know, pulling the universe out of a note. I think that's where we're all headed. I hope that you enjoyed the Steve Vai episode before that. That was fun. So many players we've had on this first year of the show. This is episode 31, and believe me, we have some great players right in the pipeline so definitely stay tuned my name is jude gold thanks for listening and of course i want to thank guitar player magazine guitarplayer.com my direct supervisor michael melinda and of course our vice president bill amstutz for supporting my podcast from day one i need to thank zoom for the h6 recorder that i use i need to thank acme helicopters and also I would like to thank most of all for this episode alan hines for going so deep into his music and for talking about the really tough chapter of his life that he's going through right now and i gotta say alan hines is as likely as anyone i've ever met man to really keep it alive till he's 95 or later go cat go alan's awesome too man he's in such good shape he plays tennis all the freaking time i think i might have hooked him up with james valentine from maroon 5 i think they played tennis once they need to play guitar now of course you can hear james's episode on episode three that was a good one i am done here today jude gold out thanks so much keep it alive till you're 95